Welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program and this is the final class of this session on rabbinic authority and personal autonomy in early rabbinic law with Dr. Ayelet Hoffman Lipson. And with that, I'll turn this to uh, Dr. Lipson. Okay, thank you very much, Evie. Uh, so it's nice to be back here for our final session today. And um, we've looked so far at two subjects in two different sessions. Um, in the first session, we talked about um, a patient uh, eating on Yom Kippur and who gets to make that decision, whether it's doctors or um, the, patient, the patient, him or herself. And last week, we talked about uh, questions of gender, right? And how much the question of gender influences this question of rabbinic authority versus personal autonomy. And we looked at a few different um, cases um, to, to see how the gender question does make a difference um, and how we can look at it through the eyes of gender and that the rabbis are struggling with asserting their authority over women specifically. And then we also looked at parallel sources about men and saw how the same dynamic plays out there. Um, and therefore, we have to ask the question of whether this is really about gender or about bodies, okay? Um, today, we're going to be continuing this perspective in a sense, because um, we'll be looking at the question of divorce. Um, and we'll be focusing here really on, on the question of uh, a woman's autonomy uh, over her body, over her choices, uh, over her uh, life in general. Um, and we'll be thinking about this, we'll be thinking about the woman's autonomy in two prisms, okay? Because I think that um, this is a case that needs to be considered uh, in the broader question of this course at large, which is about rabbinic authority versus personal autonomy. Um, but it's also a question about the woman's autonomy in her relationship with her husband, okay? How, who gets to, who gets to decide um, whether to end a marriage and what are the grounds for that? And um, we all know that there is a basic asymmetry between men and women with regards to this question in halakha, and we'll get into this a little bit more. Um, but I, the reason that I do see this as part of the question that we're, that we're discussing in this course more broadly is that um, we'll see that there are also certain ways in which the legal system um, and the rabbinic authorities support certain decisions within this um, within within the relationship between uh, between a husband and wife okay so in order to understand um, a little bit about the about the system of divorce in general what we're going to be doing in in this class is first looking at early rabbinic sources okay and trying to look at sources particularly from the Mishnah in order to construct what the early rabbis, the Tanaim, um, what did they understand to be valid grounds for a couple to end their marriage for, okay? Um, today, in the 21st century, we have modern family law talks about uh, fault-based divorce and no-fault divorce, okay? So there's systems that are based on um, divorce where you have to show some kind of grounds for divorce, right? And in more liberal countries in the Anglo-American tradition, then since the 1960s, there's developed an idea of divorce that's basically no fault, meaning a couple doesn't have to show that, you know, point a finger at the other person and say, they did this, they did that, um, you know, they were adulterous, the, the my spouse uh, beat me, um, but rather they can just say, okay, you know, we don't want to, we, we just want to put an end to this marriage, okay? Um, and we're going to see, we're going to ask that question a little bit throughout the course, how much is that a factor in rabbinic law? Does divorce have to have grounds? And what are those grounds um, for, for ending a marriage, okay? So we'll begin by looking at the sources in um, Tanaitic law in order to establish the picture as, as we see it um, in these foundational texts. 
And then we'll see that there are sources from both the Palestinian and the Babylonian Talmud that push back against this picture to some extent. Okay. Okay. So, um, as I'm sure you know, in uh, according to early Jewish law, and this is something that basically persists to our day, there is a basic asymmetry in um, in halacha between men and women. Right? We know that Masechet Kiddushin says that men acquire women. Right? There's a lot of discussion and debate about what exactly does that mean, but it's clear that even our marriage ceremony until this day is not um, completely egalitarian. Um, and similarly, also um, for ending the marriage, only men have the power to effect the divorce, okay? So even if we're talking about um, certain instances in which a woman can demand a divorce, and basically the the early sources are saying in these cases, a woman can initiate divorce and that should be a valid divorce. Still, in order to actually end the marriage, the husband has to grant the writ of divorce to the wife and it has to be um, out of his free will. Okay, so that's something important to remember as we look at all these sources that there's there's a, a basic asymmetry to the whole system of marriage as we as we start off. Okay. Um, now, um, as we see in uh, various Mishnayot throughout Masechet, especially Masechet Ketubot, but also in Masechet Yutin, um, a husband could divorce a wife for specific grounds. Um, when the wife was considered to be doing something wrong. And that would mean that a husband could divorce the wife without compensating her. Okay. So for instance, if the, if the wife, um, behaves immodestly or if the wife, um, fails to tithe, uh, to tithe the food that the husband needs to eat. Or if she doesn't observe uh, family purity laws, okay? These are all uh, given as reasons for a husband to say, you know, these, the wife is not upholding her end of the bargain in the marriage, and therefore I can end this marriage and I don't have to compensate her with whatever is written in the marriage contract in the ketubah, okay? Um, we'll also see that the Mishnah gives a lot of space to discussing blemishes, okay, and talks about both blemishes that are found um, in the on the husband's body or on the wife's body, and debates, you know, if these were blemishes that had already been on the body before the marriage, or if they only developed after the marriage, okay. Um, so we can see here, okay, let's let's look at um, here at Mishnagitin, okay? Mishnagitin, we find here a debate between two uh, ancient positions, basically, okay? Bet Shammai are actually reflecting a position that we find even in earlier sources, such as um, Qumran and also possibly um, sort, uh, uh, what, what we see Jews uh, uh, believing and upholding um, also in the New Testament, okay? So the school of Shammai says, a man should not divorce his wife unless he found in her something offensive. As he found, as, he, as it says, because he found something indecent, okay? So Beth and I are actually reflecting here an idea that basically divorce is a very, very extreme thing to do. When a couple marries, marries, okay, basically they are supposed to stay married forever. And the only reason that a couple would dissolve the marriage is if the husband found something indecent, okay, most commentators understand this to be to mean adultery okay so only if the woman was adulterous 
that's the only reason basically to um, to end the marriage. But other than that, a marriage is something that is eternal. Okay. Um, the school of Hillel says, even if he spoiled his meal or um, yeah, his, his food, as it says, because he found something um, indecent, okay, so they, they're citing the same verse, but they're focusing on different words. Bet Shammai are focusing on the erva, okay, on the something that indicates something indecent that the woman did. And Bekinat are focusing on the word daval, something, anything, whenever he's displeased with her, that's enough already for him to, um, to divorce his wife. Rabbi Akiva says, even if he found another more attractive than her, so there's nothing wrong with his wife, she's completely the same, but He's just, you know, he just doesn't want to be with her anymore. It's something completely subjective, okay? Um, as the verse says, and if she failed uh, to, please, to please him. Okay? So we can see here that there's a kind of a hierarchy in these opinions, which we can put on some kind of a spectrum of objective to subjective, right? Beth and I are saying there's no reason to get divorced unless there's something very extreme and it's very clear, it's very clear cut that the woman was adulterous. That's the only reason to dissolve a marriage. Beth Hillel say, no, actually, you know, anything that the husband found in his wife that is for him is cause for um, a divorce is a, is a good enough reason. And Rabbi Akiva says it doesn't even have to be something objective that he sees in his wife. It can be something, you know, like spoiling the food that, okay, maybe we could understand that that could be something annoying if on a regular basis uh, your food is ruined. And that's kind of evidence of a dysfunctional, uh, a dysfunctional home. But Rabbi Akiva says, no, not even that, even if something completely subject subjective, okay? He used to like this woman. He was attracted to her. Now he's attracted to someone else. Um, that's enough of a reason to um, to to annul the to to, uh, to tear the marriage apart. Okay, um, so we can see that the opinions are arranged here, and there isn't really any kind of uh, criticism, or there's no there's no voice telling us which is the correct opinion. Okay, but as in many cases in the Mishnah. We know that usually the opinion that is found at the end is sort of the, the opinion that is um, the valid opinion, okay? So the Mishnah is basically arranged already to, to tell us that Rabbi Akiva's position is really the op opinion that's upheld in, in the end of the day. And that's what we see in most, um, in most other Tanaitic sources, that um, a husband doesn't need to have a specific reason. Okay? He doesn't need to point at a specific grounds for the divorce. If he has specific grounds, then there can be scenarios in which he can say, you know, my wife actually did something wrong. She behaved immodestly or um, she's not tithing the food, for instance. That will mean that he can divorce her without having to compensate her. But if he decides to divorce her and he's willing to pay the financial price of paying her the ktuba money, right, which the payment, the original of uh, payment of the ktuba, 200 zoos was about a year's worth of uh, a, an average salary. So if he's ready to take that step and to make that payment, then he doesn't need to have some kind of objective reason, but even just the subjective uh, no-fault uh, reason is enough for him to uh, dissolve the marriage. Okay? What about if the wife wants to initiate divorce, okay? So here we see in Mishnah Tuvot, chapter seven, all of chapter seven, okay, I, didn't, I couldn't fit all of it on the page, but basically all of chapter seven in Mishnah Tuvot discusses grounds for divorce, either divorce that's initiated by the wife or divorce that's initiated by the husband, okay? 
Now, the first half of the chapter basically talks, you can see here already just even in the Hebrew that the, the wording, right? The wording of the first five Mishnayot is Hamadir Tishto, Hamadir Tishto, Hamadir Tishto. So one who vows to uh, prevent his wife from various things. Um, um, these are all cases in which the husband has to divorce and to give the ketubah, the ketubah payment, right? So let's look at these examples. A man who vows to prohibit his wife from um, benefiting from him, okay? So any kind of enjoyment. So up to 30 days, he can appoint a trustee who will give her her needs, okay? But if he made a vow for longer than that, okay, let's say he said for a vow for 20, for, for two years that his wife can have no enjoyment from him. So she can't, that means that she can't enjoy any of his property. She can't enjoy his physical intimacy, et cetera, et cetera, okay? That, that means that there isn't really a marriage, right? It's a kind of an empty marriage. And therefore, in those circumstances, you'll see the ten ktubah. He shall grant her a divorce and pay her the marriage payment. Okay. Second example. So one who vows to prohibit his wife from any kind of any particular kind of fruit. Again, he should grant her the divorce and pay her the marriage contract. So if he vows, um, he says, you know, I, I, I'm taking a vow that you are prohibited to decorate yourself. Um, some of the commentators say that this has to do with perfume. Some of them say that it has to do with uh, makeup. Um, again, he has to give her a divorce in this case. Okay, so someone who vows that um, he makes a vow that prohibits his wife from going to her father's home. Okay, if the father lives in the same city as the as the wife, um, so he can make a vow that basically disallows the wife to go to her father's home for a month. But if he makes the vow for two months, you'll see the ten ketubah. Then he already has to um, divorce the wife because it's considered, you know, too too much of a burden for the wife not to be able to go to her father's home for two months. Okay, you can hear here like hints of a jealous husband. Um, so he's making a vow that his wife should not go to a house of mourning or a house of celebration. So basically, she shouldn't have social interaction outside of her home, it sounds like. Yosivi tends to Okay. So if we look at all of these cases, basically what's going on in these cases, the, the husband is breaching the terms of the marriage because he's making... That a very a variety of vows that prohibit certain um, certain rights that the wife has. Okay, as part of the husband's obligation, he has to provide his wife with certain things, um, and certain things he doesn't have to provide, but they're just rights that are assumed. So if he's preventing her from um, being able to eat certain things. Okay, if he's preventing her from being able to beautify herself and to feel good about herself, or if he's preventing her freedom of movement, of movement, all of those things are seen by the rabbis as grounds for divorce. Now, I want to ask you to think about this expression, Yotzivi Ten Ketubah, right? What is the Mishnah actually saying here? As in so many cases in the Mishnah, Right? The Mishnah is just saying, okay, in this case, we rule that the halakha is that he should grant a divorce. Now, the Mishnah doesn't say anything about, you know, how exactly is this supposed to happen? Is this, is, 
Is there a court that's going to issue a certain writ that's going to be delivered to his home? And if he doesn't grant the divorce, then there's two thugs that are going to show up and escort him to the court, to the courtroom to make sure that he grants the divorce, right? Like that's very, very unclear. How exactly does this work? But just this language of Yosivi Tenstuba makes an assumption that there's some kind of rabbinic legal system that is going to enforce this in some kind of way, right? So what does that mean for our purposes? That means that this isn't only between the husband and the wife, right? It doesn't sound like it's merely a case that, you know, someone will knock on his door and tell him, okay, your wife complained that you made this vow, and therefore you should know that you now have a moral obligation to give her a divorce, right? It sounds more like this is, this is a list of grounds that if the husband makes one of these vows or doesn't fulfill his obligations towards his wife, the wife can come to the courtroom and say, you know, my husband's not taking care of me in the way that he is supposed to. He's made this vow. Now, please ensure that I can get my divorce so that I can marry someone else who will take care of me in a better way, right? So that means that even though the relationship of marriage and divorce is between the husband and the wife, there is another factor here. There's another element here of the, of the rabbis, of the, of the ju- judiciary that's involved in this, um, in this conversation. Okay. And in Mish- now I'm going to skip over Mishnayot, uh, six to six through nine, but in Mishnah 10, we see that there are there's a distinction between the first Mishnayot, which just say, okay, there are certain grounds that are valid grounds that the woman can demand her divorce, to other grounds where the Beidin basically is saying, in these cases, we will coerce a divorce. Okay? So Mishnah 10 says, These are the ones that they compel to grant a divorce. Okay, and what are these cases? Mukeshrin, Ubal Polifus, Vemekamets, Vemetzeret Mechoshet, Vehabursi, Ben Shayubam Adjelonifu, Uben Mishenifu Noldu. So these are all cases of people who have something that is repulsive about them. So a man who is afflicted by sores, a man who has a polyp in his nose, a man whose job is to collect excrement, a man who smelts brass, which was also considered something odiferous, um, and the tanner. Okay, so all of these people have something that is repulsive about them. And so the Mishnah says that in all of a woman who is married to one of these men, and she comes to the to the Beit Din and she says, I cannot be married to this man any longer. In all of these cases, the Beit Din will compel a divorce. Okay? Whether they were so before they went, or whether they learn, excuse me, they learned these occupations after they went. So it doesn't matter if she knew. It's basically the Mishnah is telling us. The husband can't say to the wife, well, you knew before you married me that I was a tanner. And therefore, this is something that's, you know, not, not, it's not so pleasant to live with a tanner and you should have known. So how can you say now that, um, that you want to divorce me? Right. So Mishnah is explicitly saying that the woman basically couldn't really know before what it was like to live with this man. And therefore, um, whether she knew before or whether she knew only, or whether he only started this occupation afterwards is irrelevant. Um, and in any case, she can demand a divorce. Okay. But now notice that there's a machloket. So Rabbi Meir really says this explicitly that even if the husband stipulated with the wife before the marriage, he said to her, you should know 
you know, I'm a, I'm a garbage collector and it could be hard to live with me. Make sure that it's okay with you. Um, and she said, okay. Um, even though she said that before, she can still demand the divorce afterwards. She can still say, you know, I didn't really know what it was like. Okay. Okay, the, the rabbis, the sages say, no, if she agreed before, then now she can't make the argument that she can't live with him anymore, except for someone who is afflicted by boils, okay? Because someone who is afflicted by boils, um, she, 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 chased, she chased him, okay? So basically, when they're, if they're, uh, the commentators explain here that when they're intimate together, then this will cause damage to the husband. And that's actually the cause of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of the reason that she can require divorce in this case. Okay. So, so basically, what do we see here? We see here a list of cases. If we look at, at chapter seven as a whole. Okay. We see a list of cases that the woman can demand a divorce, okay? We see that there's a division between cases where she can demand a divorce because the husband is not, um, is not uh, upholding the, the, uh, the uh, requirements of a, of a Jewish marriage, okay? And we see here in Mishnah 10, that we have here um, a discussion of blemishes, okay? Um, and in all of these cases, basically, the husband is physically repulsive, okay? So again, these are things that are very, very objective, right? There's, in contrast to what we saw with the husband initiating divorce, where it seems like basically even the most subjective reason, like even... Right, he found someone else who he liked better. That's a good enough reason for a divorce. For the wife, it's very clear that that's not a good enough reason. Right, it has to be something very, very objective that she can show to the court. Here, my husband is either not upholding the terms of the marriage, or there's something that's physically repulsive about him, and I cannot live with him anymore. Okay. And even in that case, we see here that there's a machloket between a dispute between Rabbi Meir and the sages, that the sages say, no, actually, only in the case of sores, of boils, only in that very, very specific case, can she come to the Beit Din and demand a divorce. But anything else, if she had agreed to it before, that's not a good enough reason. Okay? Um, so we can see here how there's, you know, this 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 basic asymmetry that we're all aware of is very much expanded in the Mishnah, okay? And what I think that we see even more in um, in the next Mishnah, in Mishnah Nedarim, is that we actually see this in motion. We see how over time the rabbis limited the wife's ability to present. Um, any kinds of grounds which would allow her to release herself from marriage. Okay, so look at this Mishnah from Nidarim, right? Obviously a Masechet which talks about uh, vows. And we'll see here also in this Mishnah that there were certain kinds of uh, vows or, or words that a woman could say which would allow her to release herself from a marriage, from an unwanted marriage. And these were limited over time. Okay, so the Mishnah says, At first, they used to say, there are three women or three categories of women um, who can go out and take their dower, meaning they can leave the marriage without losing their ktubah payment. Okay, even though they're the ones who are initiating the divorce. Um, so who are, who are these three categories? 
אתה אומרת, טמאה אני לך, one who says I am impure to you, one who says שמיים ביני לבינך, heaven is between me and you, and נטולה אני מן היהודים, I am removed from the Jews, okay? So again, the commentators here really, each of these is not totally clear, and the commentators dispute what exactly is meant here with each of these examples, okay? But basically, these, are, these either seem to be um, vows that the woman is making or some kind of other uh, indication that she can't, she can no longer uh, be intimate with her husband, okay? So I am impure to you. Most of the commentators understand that to mean that she's been adulterous. So she's saying, I've been adulterous, okay? She's reporting. And then if a woman, according to Halakha, if a woman is being adulterous, then she can no longer uh, return to, to her first husband, okay? In later Halakha, basically this, uh, this is kind of uh, invalidated um, because in most cases, we basically say we don't really listen to the wife because we want to preserve the marriage. So even if the wife says, I was adulterous, we say, most most of the um, most of the uh, most of the sexual interactions are actually the husband's and that that's important for what happens to the child who's born in that case okay but um, here if she says I was adulterous that could be grounds for a divorce okay um, or if she says Okay, which some of the commentators understand to mean that she's taking a vow, right? The language of heaven is between me and you. She's basically taking a vow that she's never going to be intimate with her husband again. Other commentators understand this to mean that she's saying only heaven knows what is happening between me and you, and that she's actually saying that her husband is impotent. Okay, and that's why she's demanding a divorce. Okay. Um, or that's clearly a vow that she's saying, I'm taking a vow that uh, I will not be intimate with any any Jew. Okay, and so it's not only her husband, it's any, it's any Jew, and therefore she has to divorce from her husband. Okay. So basically, what do we see here in this Mishnah? We see three claims that a woman can make that would allow her to dismantle the marriage, right? Now as in the other cases that we saw in previous classes, we have a lot of doubt here. These are cases that are cases of inherent doubt because we don't know if the woman, what the woman is saying is true. Is the husband impotent or isn't he impotent? We don't really have any way to check that as long as they're married to one another, right? When she says, I was adulterous, is that true or isn't that true, right? We don't really know. What we do know is that in each of these claims, the woman is going to pay a heavy price for claiming them, right? And therefore, we, we can make an assumption that she wouldn't make these claims until, unless there was a good reason. So either they're true or she's in such a, a bad situation in her marriage that she's willing to make this claim in order to release herself from the marriage. She's willing to even say, I was adulterous, even if she wasn't, in order to be able to exit the marriage, right? Um, so what we can see here is in addition to the grounds, the objective grounds for divorce that we saw in Mishnah Ketubot chapter 7, we see here another uh, few different claims that the wife can make in order to exempt herself from, from the marriage, right? Um, but the Mishnah doesn't end here. The Mishnah, anytime the Mishnah starts with Barishonai Omrim, we know it's going to have a continuation, right? So the Mishnah says, Chazru Lomar, they retracted and said, We don't want to create a situation where a woman can cast her eyes on another man and be disloyal to her husband. And then she'll just say, she'll bring one of these claims and the husband will have to divorce her, right? So 
we're kind of creating an out for her. And maybe it will actually be used only by women who are, um, who are being adulterous. And they'll be able to exit the marriage and still receive their ktubah. So they're not really paying any price for their adultery, right? Like maybe there's social disdain, but there's no concrete price that they're paying. So that's why the Mishnah retracted, the Chachamim retracted, and they said, so they found solutions for each of these cases. And they said, a woman who says I'm impure to you shall bring evidence for her words. A woman who said, heaven is between me and you, they shall make a supplication. Yes, this is why some of the commentators explain this to mean that the husband is impotent. So basically, they should they should pray that he won't be impotent. Okay. Um, if she says, if she vowed that she'll be removed from all the Jews, okay, so he can also basically annul his share. He'll say, okay, I'm also not going to be um, uh, part of the of the Jewish nation anymore, and they'll be able to continue their their marriage. So she'll know that it's not worth it to make that vow because she's not going to be rid of her husband and she is going to, she won't be part of the Jewish community anymore. So she'll be paying a significant price. Okay. Um, so what do we see here in this Mishnah? We actually see in progress the rabbis limiting the wife's ability to use some kind of claim in order to be able to extract herself from the marriage, right? So basically, Basically, if we summarize everything that we've seen in the Tanaitic sources, so we see that there's a, the husband has basically complete uh, carte blanche to be able to say, you know, I actually prefer this other woman, therefore I want to divorce my wife. Um, he'll have to pay her a ktubat in that case. If he finds certain things that the wife did wrong, like she was, she went out immodestly, or she didn't prepare the food in the proper way, or she didn't observe family purity, then he can divorce. That's that's divorce with grounds. So he can divorce her and he won't have to pay her the ktubah payment. Okay. On the other hand, the wife, there's a certain list of grounds that she can she can say, um, I want my husband to divorce me because. He's uh, limiting my freedom because he's not providing for me in the way that he's supposed to. Okay, and in all of those instances, the husband has to divorce and to pay the ktubah payment. Okay, and we saw that there's also certain cases in which the Mishnah says that kofin, right, that they coerce him, even if he's not ready to grant the divorce, the din is going to intervene and um and going to force the husband to give a divorce in these cases okay and those are cases where there's something very clear very objective that the husband there's something wrong about the husband there's something that's physically repulsive about him it's not just something that the wife doesn't like but it's something that everyone could see that he's a tanner that he collects excrement that he has a polyp in his nose etc okay these are not things, it's not, it's not something that's just the wife's distaste or personal opinion, right? It's something that's clear to everyone. And only in those cases, she'll be able to demand that he, um, that he be coerced. So all of these discussions are discussions that are very much developed over the history of halakha. And they're very, very relevant even today, because the question of what is a valid grounds for a wife to demand divorce seems to indicate that it needs to be something that is very, very objective, okay? We do have other grounds for divorce that developed over the Middle Ages, for instance, um, violence on behalf of the husband towards the wife becomes something that is a clear-cut grounds for divorce. Okay, and Bate Dean already in the Middle Ages invoke that as something that if the wife can show that the husband is is um, is violent towards her, then that obviously becomes a grounds for divorce. So it's not 
only limited to the list in the Mishnah, but it doesn't expand very much. And even when it does expand, it has to be something that's very objective. It's not that a wife can basically, according to the Tanaitic uh, worldview, and basically this is something that carries over for much of Jewish law, a woman can't just say, oh, I just prefer this other guy, and therefore I want my divorce. Okay, that's not that's not considered um, a valid a valid grounds, especially according to the Tanaitic worldview. But that's something that um, more or less uh, continues. Okay, um, what we do see, by contrast, is that when when we find the discussion in the Talmuds then first of all, we do find that the grounds, the objective grounds for divorce are expanded to a certain extent, okay? So for instance, if a husband refuses to give any kind of financial support to his wife, that's explicitly designated as grounds for divorce. If there are no children in the marriage, this is something that is uh, a very big debate in both in the Palestinian Talmud and in the Babylonian Talmud, okay, because it's related to the question of who has the obligation to procreate. Is it only the husband's obligation or is it also something that the wife can say, even though I don't have an obligation to procreate, I still want to have children. And therefore, if a couple is not married for a certain amount of time, then the wife can say, this this is, I want to dissolve the marriage because I want to be able to try with someone else, right? Um, so there's a dispute about that in the Talmud, but basically, especially according to um, to the to the Yerushalmi, the Yerushalmi says the woman must divorce in that case and remarry in order to try and bring children. And the Babli says if she wants to, then she can um, then she can request a divorce in that case. Um, also, impotence is something that's discussed at length uh, in the Talmud, and that also becomes another ground for, for divorce in Jewish law. Um, but what I want to focus on now is the question of no-fault divorce, right? Are there any sources that discuss what happens if a woman wants to divorce for no specific reason? Right for no reason that's in the list of the objective um, uh, items that she can bring as she can bring evidence and say you know this is something that is wrong with my husband and that's why I want divorced I want to divorce what if she just doesn't get along with her husband okay are there any sources that that discuss that um, in the in the Talmud and as we've seen already in this in this series, um, in when we have the Tanaitic picture that sort of limits the the woman's autonomy, as we have here, then we're going to see sources in the in the Talmuds that push back against that picture. Okay, um, so first of all, the first source that's relevant to this. Uh, question is in the Yerushalmi, in the Palestinian Talmud. And the Yerushalmi talks about the terms of the, um, the terms of the Ketubah, okay? And it discusses also a kind of, um, a kind of, you know, prenuptial agreement that the couple can, can write when they're signing the Ketubah, okay? And we have here the opinion of Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi says, Eilin dekatvin in sana, in sanet, okay? So those who write, if he will hate, or if she will hate, t'nai mamon u'tnayan kayam. This is a monetary stipulation, and such a stipulation is binding, okay? So basically, what is Rabbi Yossi doing here? Rabbi Yossi is taking an idea that we generally find in a monetary contract, okay? The idea um, that 
Hayam, that basically people can make any any kind of monetary stipulations that people put into a contract, it's binding. Okay? It's not considered something that is um, an isur latnota deval batorah, for instance. Okay? Which we could think that, you know, maybe there's there's certain there's a certain way according to halakha that people get married, and you can't make any more any more stipulations in addition to that. And Rabbi Yossi is arguing against that position, and he's saying, if they write in this prenuptial agreement that if he will hate or if she will hate, this is a monetary stipulation, and such a stipulation is binding. Now, as is the case in many instances in the uh, Jerusalem Talmud, this is a very, very cryptic sentence, right? This is kind of all we have. We don't know exactly what this means. If he will hate or if he will hate, then what? It's unclear, right? But based on some um, very, very early ktubot that were found both in really, really ancient papyri and also slightly later uh, ktubot that were found in the Geniza, um, some scholars have argued that we need to understand this sentence to mean that if they write, if he will hate or if she will hate, then the marriage will be dissolved and the woman will get the ktubah payment. This is a monetary stipulation, right? So basically, what does that mean? That means that there's, Rabbi Yossi is saying that although the terms of halakhic marriage are completely asymmetrical, there's a way of correcting that and creating complete symmetry between the two parties by writing a prenuptial agreement, okay? If they write this kind of prenuptial agreement, then they can either write, if he will hate her, they'll divorce, or they can write, if she will hate him, they'll divorce, or they can write both of them, you know, whether he hates her or whether she hates him. This is a monetary stipulation, and therefore they'll be able to divorce, and um, and the husband will have to grant the wife the ktubah payment as well, okay? So if this is true, this is something that's very, very radical on the one hand, and very, very limited on the other hand, right? Because on the one hand, it's radical in the sense that it's really creating complete egalitarianism um, in, in the Jewish law of marriage and divorce. Um, you know, you can also think about how this would impact the marriage itself, right? If the, if the wife knows that she signed this kind of an agreement and that, you know, it's not only that the husband can divorce her, but even if she found someone else, then she can decide to end the divorce. So that also obviously impacts the marriage itself. Um, on the other hand, what happens to those who didn't write this kind of prenup, right? It's not that Rabbi Yossi is saying, okay, from now on, this should be written into the ketubah and everyone should write, everyone should say this. It's something that's very, very limited to those who did think to make such an agreement in advance. So it doesn't really help any woman who didn't think to do this in advance, which we can assume was the majority of the of the of the couples. Okay. So that's one that's one model that's found in the in the Yerushan. Another model is found in the Bavli. And in this model, we have this, um, this passage is discussing, uh, Mishnah, which I didn't put on the source sheet. So one second, we'll just stop the share a second and we'll look at it. Let me share this. Okay. So the Mishnah in Masafak Kubot chapter five, talks about a woman who is a rebellious woman. You can see this, right? Yes? Okay. 
Um, so a woman who rebels against her husband, her marriage contract is reduced by seven dinarim each week. Rabbi Yehuda says seven half dinarim. Okay. And Admatai Mokhet, and how long can this go on for? Until her the entire sum of her marriage con- contract has been um, annulled. Okay. Uh, then there's a small dispute here. Rabbi Yossi says, no, it can continue even to the point where he, he owes him, right? And then if she'll inherit money, then he'll be able to come and demand that from her, okay? And notice that the Mishnah here is also in a way symmetrical because it talks about a woman who's rebellious, and it also talks about a husband who's rebellious. Okay, one who rebels against his wife. Okay, so they add to her ktuba um, every week a certain amount of a certain amount of money. Okay, so it's not totally clear what this source is talking about. What does this mean exactly? A woman who is rebellious and a man who is um, rebellious. Okay. Most of the most of the uh, interpretations, both later but also in the time of the Talmud, assume that this is talking about um, not fulfilling conjugal duties towards one another. Okay, so uh, a husband or a wife who refuse to perform kind of the most basic obligation of marriage okay um but we also have a brief part of the talmudic sugya on this source where the sugya actually asks wait a minute what what exactly is the moedet what exactly are the circumstances of the rebellious woman of the moedet okay and now we have a dispute between Amemal and Melzutra, Amemal said, that she says, that the wife says, I desire my husband and I torment him. But if she said he's repulsive to me, we do not compel her. So what is Amemal basically saying? Amemal is saying, okay, the the case that the Mishnah is talking about, where we find the woman very significantly, is a case where she says, I want to still be married to my husband, but I'm intentionally tormenting him. Okay? But the Moredet, the rebellious woman, is not the case of her saying he's repulsive to me. If she says he's repulsive to me, we do not compel her, okay? So now the question is, what exactly does this mean, ma'isalai? Is this only talking about cases that are similar to the cases that we saw in the Mishnah, that there's something very objective that's repulsive about him, and there, and that's why she can make the argument that she wants to be divorced from him? Or... Is ma'isai something broader? Is the emphasis here not on the ma'is, he's repulsive, but the emphasis is on the alai, right? He's repulsive to me, okay? And in fact, when you look at the uh, grammatical construction of ma'is alai, he's repulsive to me, it does seem like the, the, the emphasis is actually on the to me. So it could be that what Amena arguing here is that even when she says, you know, he's distinguishing between two cases. He's saying, if she says, I still want to be married to him, but I just want to make his life a misery. In that case, the rabbis are going to intervene and they're going to, um, they're going to put pressure on her, basically, to return to a functional marriage. Okay. But if she says, I just can't bear living with him, okay? In that case, we do not compel her. That's what Amemar is saying, okay? And this would seem to open up 
a very, very broad way of thinking about what is ma'isarai, right? If she's saying, you know, I can't live with him anymore. It's not, maybe it's not something specific. I can't point to a polyp or that he's a tanner or et cetera, et cetera. But it's just, I cannot be with this man anymore, okay? In that case, Amemo says, that's the case that we don't coerce her, okay? We don't put pressure on her. On the other hand, Malzuta, um, Malzuta uh, debates this point, refutes, uh, offers another position and says, no, we do compel her in this case, okay? We, we put pressure on her to return to the marriage because all basically Malzuta is cohering with what we saw in the Canaanitic worldview, that a woman doesn't have the autonomy to just say, you know, I don't like this man anymore. I cannot live with him anymore. Only she can offer some kind of uh, evidence or some kind of objective grounds will she be allowed to exit her marriage. But if it's just, you know, this is just, this is about me. I just can't be with him anymore. No, that's not enough. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that the sugya doesn't end here. We have a short, very, very short story. There was a case. Have a Uvda, there was a case of a woman who rebelled and Malzuta compelled her. He, 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 did, he went according to, to his theoretical position and basically he put, she said, Ma'isarai, okay, or, or she was a Moredet. And Malzuta put pressure on her so that she would go back to her marriage. And then the Sugiya says, and a very great sage was conceived as a result. Rabbi Hanina ben Sula came out of this uh, union, okay? But then the sugiya, so that would seem to indicate, yes, a woman should be compelled to return to her marriage, and we don't want to allow her the, the autonomy of being a rebellious woman and being able to just exit the marriage just because she feels like it, okay? But then there's a little appendix, and the sugiya says, but it was not so. There it was with the help of heaven. Okay? So there, there was some kind of special hashgachah that allowed for Rabbi Hanina of Surah to come out of this marriage. But this last small line in the sugya seems to be saying, just so you know, in most marriages, it's not going to work out that well. Right? If a woman really doesn't want to be in the marriage, you can't force her. It's not going to end well. It's not going to end with a Tamil Chacham coming out of this um, out of this union. So the sugya doesn't really end on a completely conclusive note. It does open up the idea that a woman should have uh, the autonomy to just say, Ma'isalai, right? I, I can't stand him. He's repulsive to me. And in that sense, we can see this as pushback against the Tanaitic worldview and an opening up of grounds for the woman um, of her being able to, to basically exit a, a divorce without pointing at a specific fault in the husband. Um, but uh, but it's, not, it's not completely conclusive. And we see here how along the whole discussion from the earliest Tanaitic uh, sources to the latest Babylonian sources, we see how this is ultimately not only a conversation between the husband and the wife, even though they're the two parties who make the pet marriage and they're the parties who dissolve the marriage. Throughout this whole discussion, we have this question of how much are the rabbis involved? How much are they going to compel the husband or compel the wife to do something? And so even though these are questions, these are very, very intimate and personal questions, um, the, the rabbinic authorities involved as part of these, uh, as part of the, the question about how much uh, autonomy to give a woman in determining whether to end her marriage or not. Okay, I kind of took the full hour, which I really didn't think would happen, but I'd be happy to hear if you have comments or questions at this point. Would you like me to read some of the questions and comments from the chat or are you receiving sure. more? Okay. Sure. Uh, let me go back and see, or if anyone, uh, oh, I, I, can, I can do that as well. Okay. So. Okay. If anyone commented in the chat there, they can also uh, unmute now and ask some questions uh, verbally. Okay. I wish you would have asked these questions 
instead of me just <laughs> talking to myself. Um, so some of these were kind of local questions. Uh, how do Mishnagitin and Nizarim relate to each other? Seem to have completely different lists for reasons for a woman getting divorced, right? So I think basically like the Mishnah in, uh, not in Gitin, but in Ketubot, is, give, is giving the formal list of, you know, these are the grounds that a woman can invoke. And then the Mishnah in Nizarim, because it's talking about a context of Nizarim, so it's talking about a much more uh, specific scenario of a woman making specific vows in which, which would the ramifications of those vows would be that she would be allowed to exempt, she would be allowed to uh, exit the marriage, but it's not, it's not really like formal grounds for divorce. And certainly it's not something you would want to put in a list of formal grounds because you wouldn't want to give the woman an idea of making these claims. So it's more, it's more a, a bad situation of if she made this claim, this is how we deal with it. Okay. And Chaya has a question, right, Chaya? Yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering in the Mishnah before, oh, sorry. Um, why do you think um, that the woman, the wayward woman, would owe more money than the was rebellious um, to his wife, considering that oh. the. So, sorry, I'm. Uh, sorry, I muted myself. Um, just because um, the doesn't the husband have an obligation to his wife as Ona, which she does not have to him. So you'd think that like violating that would cost, like we would put more pressure on him than on her. So do you have any insight? <laughs> like it, it surprised me. Yeah. So I think I think you're right, um, but I think that uh, you know we we know also from from other ancient sources that the idea, because women were less powerful in the marriage in general, then the idea of a sex strike was something that was invoked. You know, we, we find it also in... Um, There's a Greek play about that, isn't there? Sorry? There's a Greek play about that. Exactly, right. So... So that's, so it's, you know, so it apparently was something that, that both, both of the partners could, um, could do. Um, and, and for, and you're right, but when the husband does it, then that's, that's, that's really not fulfilling his terms of the marriage. And therefore the wife could say, you know, you're not fulfilling your terms of the marriage. But if the wife isn't doing it, then, that's not it's not it's not as though she was um you know not not cooking for him or not uh um, giving him or et cetera et cetera and that's why it needs to be in a separate category of uh I should say that also not all commentators agree that Moredit is about sex it's possible that it's about other things as well okay so there is, there is some debate about what exactly that means. Other questions or comments? Yeah, yeah. Ozzy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is kind of like, kind of related. Um, I know there's a Center for Women's Justice in Israel, and they've come up with a concept of a woman going to secular court uh, to uh, seek damages for her husband not giving, granting her divorce, like mental cruelty or, or whatever. I don't know if the woman has to go to Besna before she she should go to the second court in Israel. Um, I thought maybe you have more knowledge about that in terms of what, what what goes on in Israel. I know in America, I'm not sure it's ever been done before. I think the woman would have to go to Besna first, and maybe get the Besna's permission to, to go to, to to go to secular court. But I don't know yeah, if that's so, ever been done in Israel. So basically, in Israel, in order to get to get a get, you can only get a get in a in a um, bedin. But in Israel, basically, we have something that's called that is called uh, the race of the authorities, um, where basically, according to the law, um, wherever the case is opened up, that's where all the other than the get itself, all the financial details need to be resolved in that uh, in that court. And therefore, what we find often is that because there's a kind of uh, presumption that the Batei Deen favor the men, while the civil courts 
the civil family courts favored the women, the woman, um, then there's often a lot of pressure on a couple when they're considering divorce to, uh, to think about where they're going to open the case. And so what happens is that uh, a woman will often prefer to run and open the case in the civil court because she's concerned that her husband is going to open the case in the in the baking rabbani and then that won't won't be in her in her favor okay but still even if she opened the, the case in the civil court she won't be able to get her get there It'll, the get will still have to be approved in a by a bit din rabbani but again that's you know that's maybe the clearest case where we see you know, how much there's still, even though Jewish marriage is created just by a husband, a wife, and two edim, and, you know, divorce also basically doesn't require a very specialized beidin to, to dissolve a marriage. And yet, because of these dynamics, because of the asymmetry, and because of these questions of what are the grounds, what aren't the grounds, then the Beit Din and the authority of the rabbis is very, very much involved in these um, personal questions. And as I'm sure you know, the ideas of the specific Beit Din about what 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 should provide grounds, um, what what is the ideal marriage, and what are grounds for divorce on behalf of a husband, on behalf of a wife, um, often end up uh, limiting the wife's autonomy to a, to a great extent. Thank you so much, Dr. Libsyn, uh, for this interesting series. And thank you, everyone who joined us uh, on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Uh, we continue our spring program this Sunday at 10 a.m. with the fourth class of the series, Your Name Shall Be Great, uh, the, Ab uh, the Abraham Narrative, with uh, Rabbi uh, David Silver. We also have two classes on Sunday evening. Uh, they're freestanding classes, just one time. Uh, this is for our pre-Purim uh, Yom Yun. The first one is at 7.30 p.m. and it's a class with Rabbanit Leasarna. It's called The Hand in the Hiddenness. And the second one immediately after at 8.30 p.m. is a class with Rabbi David Silver again on searching for God in Megillat there. So I hope to see you there. Uh, in addition, we always have many more classes happening. You can find uh, the schedule and all the information and the registration links uh, on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. And you can watch uh, all classes live on www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again, Dr. Libsyn. Uh, and thanks again to everyone who attended. And we really hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. <laughs>